Hi, this is Josh Jackson from WRTI. Dangerous Sounds is supported by Jazz Denmark, the Danish Ministry of Culture, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Danish Arts Foundation, the Augustinus Foundation, and the members of WRTI. The year is 1923. It's still morning in Copenhagen, but the summer sun is already high in the clear blue sky. The fishing boats look like small black dots as they make their way into the harbor across water that twinkles in the light. A man in his early 30s, wearing an open coat and sixpence hat, bicycles down the street to the pier. He hums a new melody over and over again to himself, hoping to remember it later when he meets up with the rest of the band he plays banjo in. All in one motion, he jumps off the bike, lays it down, and runs across the dock. He approaches a large warship that's just arrived, an American battlecruiser that spreads a thick black putrid haze across the harbor. Sweaty from his ride, the young man hurries up a ladder and greets a guard at his post. I'm Valdemar, Valdemar Iberg. I think you've got something for me? A package from my cousin. What the young man doesn't know is that he and the contents of the package are about to become a major part of Danish music history. Testing, testing, testing. So are we clear? Skal vi gøre det? You're listening to Dangerous Sounds, the story of jazz in Denmark. Denmark, once the homeland of the Vikings of historic fact and fanciful legend. Across the Atlantic Ocean, in Europe, there's a small country called Denmark. 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 It's about one-fifth the size of Texas. Denmark. Denmark. The people of Denmark. The land of Hans Christian Andersen, Karen Blixen, Carl Nielsen, Søren Kierkegaard, and Lego. And also the ground from which grows an extensive family tree of jazz musicians that stretches all the way back to the early 1900s when the first dangerous sounds came to its shores. These sounds and the events surrounding them are the ones I want to tell you about. Over the course of the next eight episodes, we'll go on a historical journey through the history of Danish jazz. I'm going to be telling stories about legends like Sven Asmussen, John Tikai, Jan Elnik, Marilyn Masur, Lotte Anker,
Palle Mikkelborg, and many others. My name is Christen Oskod, and I'm a Danish jazz musician. I spend about 90% of my waking hours on jazz, and when I'm sleeping, I dream about jazz. So get comfortable, cancel your plans, abandon your distractions, and go on a journey with me back to the early 1920s in Denmark, where our story begins. To find out who were the very first jazz musicians in Denmark, I've been digging deep into the vast jaw-dropping archive of the Danish National Radio. It's an archive that dates back to the 1920s, so you're going to hear a lot of wonderful clips and pieces of music along the way. Jazz's intro in Denmark. Jazz slowly arrived in Denmark during World War One, from 1916 to 18, in the form of American records and sheet music. World War One has just ended, and Europe is in ruins. Miles Davis. John Coltrane, Jimi Hendrix, Beyoncé and the Beatles, none of these future musical and cultural beacons have even been born yet. Imagine that classical music, played by symphony orchestras and concert bands, plus folk music and church music, are the only forms of music available. And listening to it, experiencing the music, has been done live, at concerts or religious services. And then, suddenly, a new sound appears. Something you've never heard before. New tones, new energy, new everything. The future is suddenly upon us. Original Dixieland jazz band en hvid New Orleans quintet som et par Original Dixieland jazz band a white quintet from New Orleans that had recorded important American jazz albums a few years earlier. Wild rhythmic music, music using strange and familiar instruments in completely new ways. But how did these new sounds find their way to Denmark? And who were the people who believed in this foreign sound? Who would introduce it and incorporate it into Danish jazz? But as is often the case, the real advancement in jazz music came from the amateurs. And among the first Danish jazz amateurs was a triumvirate of cousins, Valdemar Eiberg, Kai Evans and Peter Rasmussen. So the first Danish jazz band was a trio of cousins, Valdemar Eiberg, Kai Evans and Peter Rasmussen. Valdemar Eiberg. Valdemar Eiberg was Denmark's foremost jazz pioneer during the 1920s. Like many others of the time, he had several jobs, even working as a butcher before his musical breakthrough at the age of 30. Eiberg, Valdemar Eiberg. Sofus Gerlach Valdemar. Valdemar Sofus Gerlach Eiberg, saxophonist. Uh, 
Valdemar Eiberg worked as a butcher, while Peter and Kai, who were slightly younger than the cousin, still lived at home with their parents in the outskirts of Copenhagen. Let's ask him how it all began. Kai Evans, how did you become interested in jazz? Our uncle from America sent us jazz records. What were some of the records you listened to? The Southern Rag and Jazz Band. And later, the original Dixieland Jazz Band. We were totally blown away. Kai and Peter sit and listen on the living room floor of Valdemar's home, dissecting and discussing this new foreign music brought to them by their cousin in America. Music played on instruments they'd never heard or even heard of, and which they first thought might be single-string Chinese violins. And what caught your ear? It was a new sound, a new way of playing. In the beginning, we couldn't even tell what instruments we were listening to. It turned out to be clarinets, trumpets and trombones, but also new instruments, saxophone and banjo. The wind instruments were played in a very different way than we were used to hearing. They played with vibrato and glissados, like the human voice. For the first time ever, this new music brought the sound of the outside world to Denmark. Bands of the era tried jazzing up their performances in some pretty crazy ways. For example, by firing guns in the air while playing. The sound of something resembling authentic jazz hadn't yet been seen or heard. But the trio of cousins would soon change all that. The squabble of screaming seagulls competes for airspace next to the window of the galley on the American warship. Valdemar Eiberg has finally caught his breath after his commute. He's tossed his coat to the ground and is now just wearing a shirt and a thin black tie in the morning sun. He hums the tune he's had in his head all morning, the song he'll play for his cousins, Kai and Peter, when they meet up later. All three of them have been captivated by this new music they've discovered, a strange, foreign sound that they can feel but don't fully understand. A sailor appears through a hatch with the package. Iberg unwraps the paper around the case and opens it. Inside, draped in red velour, is Denmark's first saxophone. Eiberg visits the ship several times during the 12 days it's docked and listens to the crew play Dixieland music on a slew of instruments, including piano, saxophone, trumpet, violin, banjo, and trombone. Then one day, the ship leaves the port. 
Eiberg toils with his new instrument, struggling to get something resembling music out of the horn. But little by little, hour by hour, day by day, increasingly pure tones began to emerge from the bell of the C melody saxophone. Okay. Det her for eksempel. After some digging, I found a clip with Valdemar Eiberg, an eager and energetic Valdemar Eiberg, about himself. I got the first saxophone in Denmark, and also with two octave keys. I got it from a cousin in America and just started playing. Just getting the first saxophone to Denmark is a huge milestone in Danish jazz history. But Eiberg's name is cemented in the history books for other reasons as well. He records the first Danish jazz record ever. It's called I've Got a Cross-Eyed Papa. And it was a cover of Roy Ingraham's song previously recorded by Marion Harris and Sophie Tucker. sounds a little stiff to us now, but keep in mind that it's the first of its kind. And in less than a year, Eiberg and his cousins have taken the first leaps forward in Danish jazz. But real jazz, with improvisation and the search for new uncharted territory and sounds, has not yet arrived. Most of the early material Danish jazz musicians wrote was just twists on vehicles that were already popular in the United States, And when the first bands performed on one of the few Danish jazz stages that existed at this early day and age, the music and musicians were well-behaved, smiling, polished, and generally safe. But things are about to get shaken up in a major way, and once again, from across the Atlantic. In 1925, Sam Wooding's American jazz band came to Copenhagen, where they played several times. It had huge impact on Danish jazz and was the first time Danish jazz musicians and audiences had the chance to see, hear and dance to real jazz. The people of Denmark are isolated. Remember, this is still before we enter into the globalized, multicultural societies that we know and take for granted today. Few Danes have ever even seen a black person at this point in time. And it's only been a few years since 1905, when two black children were put on display in the Tivoli Gardens, an amusement park. So when the first commercial posters for Sam Wooding's band were put up in the streets of Copenhagen, it raised quite a few eyebrows. The great American sensation, the Chocolate Dolls, Sam Wooding with the world's best jazz band, the poster said. The question, then, is whether or not the Danish audience and critics were ready for it. 
Mr. Sam Wooding, you are known as the man who brought jazz to Europe. It was in the middle of the 20s. I don't know if it was. That's right. It was between 1924-1925. Sam Wooding was a jazz pianist and band leader from Philadelphia. He's not a major stylist in jazz history overall, but he's incredibly important to the story of jazz in Denmark because he's the first person to bring a real jazz band with black musicians to the small, white, isolated country. And we, I must say that we had a wonderful time here at the time, and I think the, the people here really enjoyed our music as it was a new experience for them because we had just come from Europe and we were from America, and we were the first ones to bring this type of music to them. By 1925, the world has gotten a distance from the atrocities of World War I. In many ways, the war brought Europe to a crossroads, testing loyalties and boundaries, but was also a defining moment in European history for another reason. The end of the war marked the collapse of the old world and the birth of a new era. There were two alignments in Danish society at the time. The cultural pessimists who dreaded the dawn of the new age and everything unknown that came with it, including modern experimental and provocative art forms. And then there were the cultural radicals who enthusiastically immersed themselves in everything new. Imagine for a moment that it's 1925 and you're on your way to a concert with music you've only heard in simplified form. You've read and heard all about black musicians in the United States playing the real deal authentic jazz, but you've never had access to it. I've come across a clip with Peter Siegfried Kosper Cornelius, an early figure in Danish jazz. He talks about how he felt when as a 15-year-old he persuaded his mother to take him to the concert with Sam Wooding's band. The clip also gives us a glimpse into the mind of a 15-year-old boy in the 1920s and his experience with Copenhagen nightlife. It was a wild lifestyle that I never knew existed before then. There were hookers and all kinds of stuff. I took it all in. And this is to you some sort of forestelling that outspelled for my eyes. We sat next to the orchestra. We were up close by the band, and the musicians were looking at us. They could see we were excited. Even my mom thought it was interesting to be there in the thick of the action. I was ecstatic because that was the first time I really heard live jazz. Yes. The concert with Sam Wooding's band caused a stir among the audience. To put it mildly, 
It was the thing I had been missing. It wasn't a protest against classical music. It was like only having ever seen black and white TV and then suddenly watching something in full color for the first time. It was so alive. And then there were the reviewers and critics, who also had a pretty strong reaction to what they saw and heard. They considered it subhuman. They thought it was primitive, even though the people playing it were modern metropolitan Americans. But they were black. At every Danish newspaper at the time, reviewers sat at their typewriters and wrote about what they had just experienced. Violent indignation and captivated horror were among the sensations expressed in these initial reviews. It's pretty heavy reading today. Jazz wasn't just new foreign music. After Sam Wooding's visit, it was now synonymous with rampant savagery, unbridled sexuality and hypnotic energy that would send modern man back to a primitive state. But some people objected to the condescending, dismissive attitude toward the new music. The great Danish poet and writer Tom Christensen, author of the masterpiece Herberg, wrote a letter to the editor of the newspaper Extrabladet, in which he defended the new music. The headline read, Cheers to Jazz. Jazz needs to be heard with the whole body just as it's played with the whole body. Jazz is not horniness. Jazz is body culture. Jazz melodies are muscle melodies. Jazz is not the past. Jazz is the future. It's dependent on its own imagination, its ability to find new variations, and it gives the body freedom to find an individual form of expression. Thanks, Tom. I needed that. So what was it exactly about Sam Wooding's trip to Copenhagen that was so critical to that moment? Before he arrived, Danish jazz was stiff and largely absent of the freedom that's essential to its creative identity. But after Wooding's concert, the Danes have finally gotten a taste of true improvisation for the first time ever. Some people can improvise, and others don't want anything to do with it. They just play their parts, and that's it. But for some people, when it says ad lib in their sheet music, it means they can just play whatever they want. Playing exactly what you hear is obvious and taken for granted today. But at that point in time, it was unheard of and radical as a concept. And the idea of improvisation was beyond the pale. You probably know it like this. Or like this. 
or maybe this. Wooding's concert transformed the understanding and expectations, not to mention the reputation, of jazz music in Copenhagen and around Denmark. Shortly after, a sea of musicians began to play in a slew of new bands. Valdemar Eiberg and his cousin Kai Evans are now both band leaders, and they blast the dangerous sounds at nightclubs that have sprung up in Copenhagen. They play all through the night and into the early morning hours. They play at clubs like Adlon, a roaring Gatsby-esque jazz cave in the Danish capital, where culturally radical citizens can get drunk on ice-cold champagne and eat mountains of oysters while cutting a rug, shaking their stuff on the dance floor to swing music played by the band on stage. Things were going well for the bands. According to legend, things were going so well for Kai Evans' band that at one time he even showed up for a concert in a limousine with white gloves on and hired people just to carry his saxophone. I've heard legends about Kai Evans arriving in his own limousine with a private driver wearing white gloves and a hired servant there just to take his cape. It's true. Someone brought in his gold saxophone on a red velvet pillow Then they played three tunes and made 500 crowns, the same as a thousand dollars today. <laughs> to begin with, jazz was something you could only experience live. But in April of 1925, the same year as Wooding's concert, something huge happens in Denmark. DR, Denmark's radio. The National Public Broadcasting Organization went on the air and began documenting and archiving everything in Danish culture. And with DR operational, Eiberg and the others suddenly had the chance to bring jazz to all of Denmark. But unfortunately for them, their audience and the music, the first director of DR was Emil Holm, a chamber singer and not exactly a fan of jazz. Neither was his musical advisor at the time, the great Danish composer Carl Nielsen, who directly warned Emil Holm against jazz and its dangerous nature. Music has long been a spiritual value that brings us together, but this music is a whore, offering itself through open doors and windows to bums and street trash. If the worst music could be translated into words, it would surely be banned by the morality police for public indecency. Our hope is that the program manager and the council do not give up and abandon the educational importance offered by good, righteous music. So Emil Holm and Carl Nielsen take the first round. And before long, there's some new fuel for their mutual hatred of jazz. In 1928, a famous American singer visits Copenhagen 
and to the haters, she's pretty much the incarnation of jazz music's seedy, unseemly reputation. At this point in time, she's attracted serious attention in major European cities. Rumor has it that the black woman dances on stage, but not like anything anyone's ever seen before. Her moves are out of control, provoking audiences in Paris and Berlin to dance and party the nights away. The singer and dancer is an instant icon of the Roaring Twenties. The one and only Josephine Baker. Wearing nothing but banana skirts and pearl necklaces, she gives a breathtaking performance at the Daumar Theater. And already from the first beat, it's clear that all the rumors are true. She swings around playfully and seductively in freely improvised dance moves. Completely topless. It's wild, liberating modernism blown straight into the eyes and ears of the audience. No one at the show has ever seen anything like it. Among the audience members at the Daumar Theater that night was the great Danish architect and modernist Paul Henningsen. He was so excited that he wrote a review immediately after the concert. It provoked a strong reaction. My piece started like this. If naturalness is teachable, then all mothers should send their daughters to Josephine Baker to study it. However, not everyone shared Paul Henningsen's enthusiasm. Just like Sam Wooding's experience three years earlier, Baker is ravaged in harsh and openly racist reviews. Howls from the primeval forest and sewage water that washes over the Copenhagen youth are just some of the language that's weaponized against her, the new music, and the era of drugs, dancing, and danger that she represents. Despite all this, Josephine Baker becomes a total superstar in the years after her trip to Denmark. When you sing Fiedus Amour, you ask your audience how many loves they have. Now your audience through me wants to ask you exactly the same question. Now you really are curious. Well, if you just must know, naturally I ask the people because I'm a woman and women are usually, not in general naturally, but some of us are curious. Yes, but you haven't still answered how many loves do you have? I have been trying to get around it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, all right. My two loves is Paris and Copenhagen. Josephine Baker returns to Copenhagen several times over the following years and performs with a number of Danish musicians. I don't think it's necessary for me to say that I like Copenhagen. Copenhagen, I've been coming here for years and and our friendship now has become so close until I don't think it's necessary to say that I like Copenhagen. But there is one thing that I can say that that is that I feel at home here. Her authentic and contemporary fearless energy 
what inspired Danish jazz musicians to break free from their tame, predictable, and in some cases misunderstood jazz tendencies. But it's not just the minds of musicians and the cultural elite that have been opened up by the new dangerous sounds. Jazz music is growing in popularity and spreading around the whole country now. Even being heard in Danish homes. Just how widespread its reach really is finally becomes clear in 1933 when Pops comes to town. It's the 19th of October, 1933, at the Central Station in Copenhagen. A crowd of 10,000 people is gathered, and as the hordes stream in through the main entrance, people stand on benches and even scale pillars in the arrival hall for a better view. They're all waiting on a train with very specific cargo, and it's only a few hundred yards away now. One of the biggest stars on the planet sits in passenger car number 12. But until now, he's just been a myth, a sound. The train approaches the platform and the crowd forces its way down the stairs. A feeble police barricade is all that separates them from the area that's been cleared for his arrival. The train finally stops at the platform, and the mood is tense. Only the shouts from the arrival hall and the noise of the train can be heard. The doors open. It's the moment all of Copenhagen has been waiting for. The train station erupts, teeming with anxious fans and spectators who can't hold themselves back any longer. They easily bust through the police barricade, crashing onto the platform. Louis Armstrong has arrived in Copenhagen. Louis Armstrong is the face and sound of jazz music, and one of the biggest stars in the whole world at the time, bar none. The scene around his arrival is reminiscent of Beatlemania at its height. No less than 10,000 people show up at Copenhagen's central station in 1933, just because they've heard he's coming to town. People go absolutely nuts. Armstrong is both the incarnation of what's happening now and what's to come, at the same time. His warm and timeless, instantly recognizable singing voice an infectious, larger-than-life personality make him irresistible to the crowds who were clamoring for him before they ever laid eyes on him. On a personal note, I want to say that even today it's hard to think of a hipper and more powerful artist than Pops. What he had going on was wildly contemporary and remains in its own category. In the late 1920s and early 30s, gramophone records featuring the sound of Louis Armstrong had made their way across the Atlantic and were playing on repeat in shops all around town. So even before he arrives in Copenhagen, 
Armstrong's charm had already penetrated deep into the souls of Danes. Now, just imagine being one of the people who managed to get a ticket to the first concert with the jazz god Louis Armstrong in the concert hall in Tivoli. The day after the scene in the train station, the lucky and wealthy few who were able to buy tickets to Louis Armstrong's concert find their way to their seats in Tivoli's concert hall. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Armstrong, and we're going to swing one of the good old... good. In matching tuxedos, the orchestra plays for the enthralled, open-minded audience. I Cover the Waterfront is the first song. I cover the waterfront. I cover the waterfront. I like it. Look at that. Armstrong proceeds to sail through song after song, atop wisps of the snare drum, carried by glimmering horn harmonies, supported by the calm meandering of the bass, all in a sea of crystal clear chords from the piano. small white handkerchief and wipes his hands with it when he's not playing. A gold watch protrudes from under his cuff and flashes playfully in the lights on stage, almost seeming to wink at audience members in the steamy hall as he plays through his set. A lot of people discovered that there was more to jazz than they had thought. There were other layers. Meeting him was an unforgettable experience. The art of improvisation, the ability to free oneself from the written music on the page. Armstrong fever has officially hit Copenhagen. 
and Danish band leaders will compete for attention of the original jazz superstar for years to come. Everything has changed. After Louis' first concert, we After Louis' first concert, we had a huge party for him at the Palace Hotel in one of the halls there, with toasts and speeches that went all night into the morning. I have no idea how we got home from that party. No one remembers. I'm sitting here looking at a photograph from the party mentioned. You can see all the big Danish stars of the time surrounding Pops. And they are absolutely glowing with pride. He was so loved and revered. His solos were wonderful and inspired. His incredible raspy voice that some people thought was awful. We loved it. Louis Armstrong's Tivoli concert was important for several reasons. As we've discussed, it was a turning point for jazz music in Denmark. But it was also the first time the icon was ever immortalized on film. Ever. I encourage you all to find it online and check it out. You will not be disappointed, I promise you. The Danish jazz musicians now had a hero, a sound and a style to reach for. And after Armstrong's visit to Denmark, well, things really take off. Jazz music is refined and Danish musicians begin to become musical personalities in their own right. I remember an interview I did for a newspaper. Something I said caused some outrage. I told them, but I had three great experiences. The first was Beethoven's Misa Solemnis, the second was Stravinsky's The Story of a Soldier, and the third was Louis Armstrong. The essence of the music, the rhythm, the beat, the harmonies, in particular, the art of improvisation. In 1923, the first C melody saxophone sails across the Atlantic Ocean from America to Denmark and ends up in the hands of Valdemar Eiberg. Only 10 years later, Louis Armstrong would come to Copenhagen and light up the enthusiastic Danish audiences. It's absolutely incredible that so much went down in such a short period of time. This was the first episode of Dangerous Sounds, a series about the development of jazz in Denmark. In our next episode, a dark shadow is cast over Europe once again. Another war is on the horizon. And in Denmark, 
jazz will play a role in the resistance against the occupying Nazi forces. My name is Christen Osgood. Dangerous Sounds is produced by Mono Mono and distributed by WRTI Philadelphia. Creston Osgood is the host, with narrator Joan as policewoman. Special thanks to Eva Frost at Jazz Denmark, project managers Sue Edwards, and Josh Jackson from WRTI. Learn more about our mission to champion music as a vital cultural resource. Visit WRTI.org.